0: Hello and welcome back, finally, long overdue to my procrastination, I mean, uh, the Reluctant Tom Podcast. Uh, my name's Chris, I'm going to be talking at you again today. Uh, one day, hopefully I'll be able to talk with you. Uh, if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast, that's great, let me know. Obviously it's kind of hard during COVID, but we'll figure something out, try to get it taken care of. So, quick update, as uh, it's mid-January and I think my last podcast was November, maybe early December, Uh, a lot of stuff going on, um, moved, um, back in school for this semester. Um, just taking some basic classes, uh, just some, some fun stuff. Um, now I moved. And so now I'm living in an apartment that has a couple extra roommates. So trying to figure out a time when the apartment is totally quiet is another little thing that I'll be kind of, uh, working on, but, um, shouldn't be too hard as the, uh, apartment itself is relatively quiet. Um, So working on trying to keep it quiet, so there's not a lot of ambient noise, nothing too annoying aside from my voice that is uh, talking about wine. One other update from me, Chris, the host of the Reluctant Psalm podcast, I got COVID. Okay, so if you're listening to this podcast, I called everybody that I've been around since I had COVID And I'm better now, as I have not shown symptoms in three weeks. That being said, I'm still doing everything I can to quarantine, um, maintain as little uh, interaction as possible with individuals without my mask on, and also uh, limit exposure uh, outside with my mask on. Um, I know everybody takes it differently. Um, I had a fever. I had some body aches. But the really hard thing for me was, the most terrifying thing for me was, I lost my sense of smell and I lost my sense of taste. So, uh, needless to say, drinking wine was not a big habit of mine during the uh, week and a half, uh, almost two weeks. Um, and then there was a, a residual week or so where, you know, certain things weren't still tasting the right way. Um, but it all started with ketchup. Got french fries, dipped them in ketchup, and I, I swore that the ketchup was bad. Something was wrong with it. So I threw the whole bottle away, and I got another bottle of ketchup, and I tried it, and it tasted off also. So I thought, oh, that's weird. So I got some sweet and sour sauce. That tastes off as well. Uh, shortly thereafter, a couple days later, I drank some kombucha, which tastes very similarly um, spoiled, uh, somewhat like a moldy smell would smell. That's what it tastes like. However disgusting that sounds. I know you don't come to this podcast to listen to me talk about mold, come to this talk, podcast to listen to me talk about wine, or maybe you come to this podcast because you just like to torture yourself by listening to me fucking babble. But that being said, I um, wanted to keep you guys updated. My my taste and my smell are back, um, still out of work, restaurants are still closed, so, I'm just trying to stay busy. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of tasting going on, um, not a lot of tasting groups or anything like that. Uh, so, about once a week, I'm having one of my roommates blind taste me on something. Um, the most recent bottle I blind tasted uh, was a Shinon, which I was pretty far off. Uh, if you've had Shinon before, they can vary slightly, but six year old Shinon wasn't what I was expecting it to be. So needless to say, I, I failed. Uh, I didn't fail, but I knew that it was French wine. Just couldn't really nail down the region. So today's podcast, is not about Chinon. It's not about blind tasting or COVID. Today's podcast is about champagne. I wanted to talk about champagne because I've had a few pictures of bottles that I've been holding on to. I'm sorry. Today's podcast is about sparkling wine. So there's uh, been a few pictures I've been holding on to and a few memories I've been holding on to and tasting notes and things like that that I really wanted to cover and I really wanted to clarify some things when it comes to the world of sparkling wine. What makes champagne champagne? What makes it not champagne? Why you can't call something a Prosecco a champagne? Personally, I don't really care. If you're going to drink wine, I'm happy. That's, That's the business. If you're spending money on wine... Your, your your money is going to wineries and, and psalms and retail shops and you're bringing up the entire uh, industry as a whole. So whatever you call it, you could call it swill, you could call it bubbly, you could call it sparkles, you could call it champagne, you could call it anything you want. I really don't care. Just keep drinking wine. Please keep drinking wine. But if you want to call it the right name and you want to be slightly more educated on sparkling wines, I'm your guy. And not just sparkling wines, but wines that have a little bit of carbon dioxide in them. Um, So I've gone over this before, but I'll cover it again just as a brief overview so we can understand the process of fermentation as it plays a very important role in bubbles, sparkling wine. So yeast, a living component in the wine, eats sugar, and creates three things. These three things are very important. Uh, The reason that most wine has to be stored in cellars or in caves or has to be controlled in the process of fermentation is because it creates heat, and if the heat gets too high, it can kill the yeast, which stops the fermentation, uh, which decreases the level of alcohol. It also creates ethanol. Ethanol is alcohol. Uh, It is poisonous to humans, and that's why we get drunk. Yay, yay. Poison ourselves. I certainly like to drink a lot of poison, but uh, trying to be a good boy lately. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, aside from ethanol and heat, uh, it also creates uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, I'm sorry, CO2. Uh, so CO2 is what you see in sodas. It's carbonation. It's, it's what gives wine uh, its sparkling component. It's what gives soda its sparkling component. Uh, but there's different processes in which it's formed. Um, they're not fermenting things when they're making Coca-Cola. I mean, I don't think so. Hopefully not, because that'd be kind of weird. Anyways, so uh, I wanted to go over the few different styles of production um, and kind of clarify some things, the difference between wines being made in the Charmont method and wines being made in the traditional method. So traditional method is where we'll start because I think this is one of the most classic expressions of sparkling wine. Uh, It's what people have come to consider the standard of a sparkling wine. So traditional method is something that's used in the production of Franciacorta, Cava, and Champagne, Cremant. If you've ever had another sparkling wine from uh, France that's called Cremant, it's also made in a very similar style, uh, uh, the same style to uh, Champagne. So what's going on is they're fermenting these grapes, and then champagne. It's generally three grapes. I, I, chef Will, if you're listening, I apologize. I, I misspoke a few months ago, and and I always like to admit when I'm wrong. And I don't know how I've had such an oversight for so long, but uh, champagne can be made from more than just three grapes. It can be made from many different grapes. I think seven, six, thirteen. I can't remember. I get it confused. But either way, more than three. But the primary three that are used, which is what I thought were the only three, is Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Meunier. Meunier used to be called Pinot Meunier. Uh, It's been renamed since then, so you might still see things that say Pinot Meunier. You might see things that say Meunier. It's the same grape. Anyways, those are the three grapes that are traditionally used in the production of champagne. Franciacorda, which I mentioned earlier, is a wine that's produced in metodo Tradizionale, which is traditional method, if you couldn't catch that. Uh, and then cava is a wine that's made in Spain that's also made in the same style. Um, and they've also used the term method Champenois, which isn't a highly thought of term to use. They just kind of call it classical method, traditional method, metodo traditionnel. It, it's important to not... Pigeonhole yourself into thinking method Champagnois because that would refer exclusively to champagne. Um, So they're taking these three different grapes, they're fermenting them, they're putting the juice in the bottle, and then they're adding sugar and adding yeast to the bottle. And then they seal it with a crown cap, which, if you've ever opened a bottle of beer, that's a crown cap. Uh, So, funny enough, Champagne bottles of the highest caliber are generally using beer caps. I know it's not really a beer cap. It's called a crown cap. But they're using a bottle cap to seal the uh, product. And so what's going on is is they're creating a secondary fermentation inside the bottle. So the first fermentation is happening in a barrel. That's kind of giving it some of the characteristics that we come to expect in champagne, uh, some of the toasty notes, some of the... the, um, nuttiness, some of the breadiness, and then there's a secondary fermentation that goes on that kind of enforces some of those things, but can also counteract some of those things. Um, So they're adding yeast and sugar to the bottle to feed the yeast, because again, yeast eats sugar, it creates ethanol, it creates CO2, and it creates heat. Um, The CO2 is what they're focusing on. They want those bubbles to be developed inside of the bottle. Uh, And then what's going on is they're riddling the bottles riddling is kind of a um, process that is uh, laborious uh, takes a lot of effort basically what happens is is the bottles are kept in a riddling rack which is a wood beam if you will with holes in it the bottle is slightly turned downward so the cap is lower than the butt of the wine and over time somebody comes through and turns the bottles slightly What's happening is, is over the process, the yeast is building up at the head of the bottle or the neck of the bottle. And after a certain number of time, everybody has different methods, but after a certain number of time, they're taking the bottle and all the yeast has been built up in the neck. They're They're cooling. I don't know if they're necessarily freezing. I'm fairly certain that they freeze the neck. And when the neck freezes, that yeast that's all in the front of the neck of the bottle, freezes into kind of one clump, if you will. Then they put the bottle right side up, they open in the crown cap, and when it opens, it spits the yeast out because of the pressure that's inside the bottle. So instead of having to go in, pour the wine out, filter the yeast out, pour the wine back in the bottle, they just figured out a way to open the cap and have the champagne sparkling wine push the yeast cap out of the bottle. And then they're doing, that's called, disgorgement. And then they're doing what's called dosage. Dosage is where they're adding sugar uh, and they're also adding um, more still wine into the bottle. So the secondary process uh, of dosage, adding sugar can sometimes be done, sometimes isn't always done, um, but it will affect the evolution of the wine given that it's going to see more time on the shelf or It's going to be something that somebody ages for a long time, whatever. They're doing that to finalize the product in the bottle. Um, And then also adding a still wine. First of all, they're doing it to fill the bottle up the rest of the way um, with wine because you don't want them to fill it with water. Uh, Second of all, they sometimes add either Chardonnay or sometimes add Pinot Noir. They do dosages with different wines because, again – they're trying to affect the final product of the bottle. So now what happens is they put the cork in and they put the cage on, which is the same thing that everybody sees when they go to the store and they see champagne or if you've ever opened a bottle at home of of sparkling wine that has that metal cage and that really funny mushroom looking cork on it. So after that, they're done. So the the minimum qualifications for aging of a non-vintage champagne, non-vintage meaning that There's no vintage or year on the bottle. Normally, you'll see 2011 this, 2012 this, 2017 X and X. With champagne and other sparkling wines, oftentimes you see a... It doesn't say it. It just has no vintage. It has no year of when it was produced or anything like that. So for non-vintage champagne, it has to be 15 months Aged before they can release it, and for vintage champagne, it has to be aged for at least three years. So, for three years, somebody's going through the cellar and turning the bottles slightly to help all of the yeast kind of pile up at the front. So, if you've ever thought that champagne's not worth the cost, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong, but maybe there's a little bit more understanding as to why it costs extra. There's a few extra steps that go into it, there's a little bit of extra effort. There's certainly a painstaking, laborious process to make a sparkling wine, especially in consideration to something like the uh, Charmant method, which we'll talk about later. So again, traditional method is bottle fermentation. So each bottle is individualistic uh, and also each bottle kind of develops on its own. And it can also be quite uh, painstaking. They only do this, however, for half bottles, full bottles, and magnum bottles. So 375 milliliters, 750 milliliter, and 1.5 milliliter. Anything over or under, they use a transfer method, which I'll go over. Um, so if you're getting a 750 milliliter bottle of champagne, they made that wine. They didn't make the wine exclusively in that bottle, but that wine has been in that bottle for quite a long time, and it's evolved on its own in that bottle. So you're paying a little extra But you're getting just a totally different quality, a totally different craft of a product. Okay, next. If you're still with me. If you're still with me, thank you. Uh, And also, I don't know why you're here. Why are you listening to me talk about this stuff? Maybe you're not. If you're not, good for you. If you are, thanks. Thanks for putting up with me. Okay, next method. Ancestral method. So the ancestral method has been around since before the traditional method, they estimate for 200 plus years. uh, The monks in uh, Lemieux, which I think is in, um, it's in France, but I think it's in the uh, Languedoc, um, were making sparkling wine in 1531. Uh, Petalent Natural is what they call it, uh, or Petnat is the pet name. Petnat, pet name. If you've ever had a champagne and somebody calls it pet nat or says I love pet nats, like uh, one of the chefs that I work with uh, loves pet nats. That's just short for petillant naturel. Um, so this wine is a little more finicky. Um, it, it doesn't have the longevity that a champagne has or uh, a wine made with the traditional method has. Um, there's no dosage. There's no disgorging. So they're not removing the yeast by piling it up at the cap and freezing it, and they're not removing that cap and adding more sugar, adding more wine. So no dosage, no disgorging. The bottles are completely emptied and cleaned and then refilled with the wine. That's how they're getting out the yeast. Uh, Also, the fermentation doesn't finish. So it's a little bit of a lower alcohol content. uh, And again, that can affect the longevity of the wine. Uh, But generally the wines are highly aromatic. Uh, They have lower alcohol, sometimes down to 6%. um, And they're normally only good for about one to three years after they're bottling. There's some that that age for longer. Uh, Generally it's a slightly sweeter product as the yeast hasn't eaten as much of the sugar. Um, Oftentimes you can find dry pet naps, but uh, much less frequently than you can find just a regular old pet nap. Okay, transfer method. I was talking about the transfer method earlier when it came to uh, method traditional or traditional method uh, production of sparkling wines. What's going on here is is they're putting the wine from the barrel into the bottle. They're doing the secondary fermentation in the bottle. They're removing the wine from that bottle and they're pouring it into a tank. Then they're filtering. They're doing. They're they're maintaining a little bit more of the uh, fermentation in the tank and then they're filtering the yeast out. Then the dosage takes place, and then they put the wine into either very small bottles, if you've ever seen. I think Moet does 187 milliliters, or split is what we use the term for in the industry, or, you know, three-liter bottle, six-liter bottle. They have Jeroboam's. They have Methuselah's. They have all these different names for all these different sizes of bottles. But if you've ever seen just a completely... Gigantic or obnoxiously large bottle of champagne, the way that it got in that bottle, it was actually transferred into that bottle. Um, the transfer method is nice in a way that you're blending together two different bottles, so you won't have as much of a variation, or more than two bottles, you won't have as much of a variation when it comes to the final product. You're going to have a little bit more of a, um, a focus concentrated. Uh, bubbles, uh, sparkling wine. Okay, next is the Charmant Method. Charmant Method is something that I think when I first heard about it and I first learned about it, obviously, as I've said before, I'm, I'm quite ignorant, especially in my young age, uh, and I, I am always wrong. And I, can, I intend to be wrong for the rest of my life about certain things. That way, I learn that I'm wrong about them and I can get better at knowing more about them or be corrected so I can have the correct information. Um, so the Charmant method is something that I thought was uh, ch- cheap, um, looked down on. Uh, I kind of thought, I don't want anything that's made with the Charmant method. Um, but there's some really fantastic wines out there. Uh, this is also known as a Metodo Martinati. Um, so in 1895, uh, Federico uh, Martinati um started fermenting wines in this way, and then uh, a fellow by the name of Eugene Charmont came by in 1907 and started making, uh, a, kind of tweaked the uh, process and helped develop it a little bit further. Basically, it's a tank method. Um, the wine is mixed in stainless steel tanks. The uh, sugar and the yeast are added to the stainless steel tanks, so the secondary fermentation is going on inside of the stainless steel tanks. Now, This is awesome for the winemaker. Uh, There's a little bit more control because that tank, you can adjust the temperature, um, which affects the rate of uh, fermentation. Um, You can control the pressure. Uh, So there's a lot of different things that you can do to kind of have a little bit more control over the wine. And also it's way cheaper uh, and much easier to produce. Now, I'm not saying making wine is easy and anybody can do it, but there's less steps involved as, as you've heard me say earlier, there's many steps involved in making a wine on the traditional method. And after it leaves this pressurized tank, um, it just goes straight into the bottle. So there's no secondary fermentation. There's no disgorgement when, you know, the sediment and the yeast get to the front of the bottle and they pop it out and then they fill it with other wine. Um, None of that's taking place. You see this a lot in Proseccos and and, uh, Osti wines um, from northwestern Italy. Uh, If you've ever had Lamarca Prosecco, Zonin Prosecco, uh, Mianetti Prosecco, any old Prosecco, they're all made, not all of them, most of them are made in this style. And they're made from the Glera grape. Um, There's a few other methods, nothing really fancy. There's the continuous method, which is also known as the Russian method, they actually circulate the wine inside the tank. Um, I don't know necessarily how it's better than the Charmant method. Uh, there's a Diwa method. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, the yeast is controlled by cooling the bottles a little bit more. And there's also the soda method, uh, which is what they call it, which is where they just inject CO2 into the product, which is relatively uncommon in the United States. Um, you do see it in Europe, but in Europe, there's all kinds of regulations that it has to say on the bottle that it was made by adding CO2. Um, that way people don't really get it confused with the quality of production of something made in the traditional method. Um, something that is kind of interesting that I've never heard of before, but um, again, there's so many things for me to learn, uh, are certain faults that can exist within the um, sparkling wine world. So there's this thing called toad's eyes, Um which happens when a wine spends too much time in the barrel. Uh, it gets big, viscous bubbles. Um, so in sparkling wine, what's the most highly thought of is when you drink a wine, it has small bubbles that are really precise and really elegant and soft. And if you drink a wine that's really bubbly and has a ton of carbonation and it's kind of rough, it's considered to be of lesser quality. Not even lesser quality. I would just say that it's uh, less sought after. Most of the time, people like the soft bubbles, um, more bubbles per square inch or whatever. I don't know. Anyways, smaller, softer bubbles is more highly thought of. So toad's eyes is something that could be really detrimental to the wine, uh, after the cask fermentation. Um, again, it gets big viscous bubbles, which are not what you want if you're making a wine into a sparkling wine. You don't want big bubbles. You want little bubbles, um. There's still cork being put into the wine, so there's still the possibility of the wine being corked. Um, And then also, this is something I wanted to bring up because I thought it was interesting. One wine I'm going to talk about after this, and one other wine. When you think of Champagne, maybe you think of uh, Dom Perignon. Maybe you think of Ace of Spades, also known... Well, Armand de Brignac, also known as Ace of Spades. Maybe you think of Cristal. Well, if you're thinking of Cristal the wine is surprisingly bottled in a clear bottle. Now if you haven't seen it, maybe you'll notice it. If you go to the store and you see it in, you know, a display case or whatever, you go to the liquor store and you see it, you see it in a video online or whatever, it's made in a clear bottle. Now that being said, most other champagnes are in dark green bottles. Also the glass is quite thick. It's a special glass because of the amount of pressure that's inside the bottle. They don't want it to crack um, or be too highly pressured. uh, But also it helps protect the wine from sunlight because the sunlight can taint it. It can make it kind of change color. It can affect the evolution of the wine. But Cristal puts theirs in a clear bottle. They also wrap it in a, I guess it's cellophane, kind of like a yellow tinted cellophane. And they have other colors of cellophane as well. But if just the regular Cristal is wrapped in a yellow cellophane, and the cellophane is what's blocking the sunlight in this situation. So one of the other wines that I've had lately uh, does this as well. So again, I said I've been holding on to this for a long time. I know I haven't put out a podcast in a long time. Greg, if you're listening, here's your content. Thanks for uh, bringing it up. I know that I've been slacking. Uh, but I'm happy to get back out there and talk to you guys. Um, so the last day of dining in San Francisco happened, I think it was early December, maybe end of November. It's times just kind of slipping away from me now. Um, We were doing outdoor dining. Then we did indoor dining. We were supposed to go to 50% indoor dining. Then we dropped back to no indoor dining. And then we completely shut off outdoor dining. And the outdoor dining stoppage uh, was due to the holidays coming up. I think that there was a, a major concern about the cases spiking Um, The cases spiked anyways, unfortunately, so it looks like closing down the restaurants didn't incredibly impact the uh, spike, but uh, hopefully it lessened it. I am not a scientist, so I have no right to say it was wrong or it was the right idea. Uh, However, I can say that I'm quite bored, and even though I'm bored, I'm obviously not making podcasts, so I guess I'm not that bored. A lot of video games, a lot of reading, um, a lot of... uh, self-loathing going on. Not a lot of time for podcasts when you're self-loathing. Let me tell you, it's a busy schedule. Okay. So at the last day of work, we had a few bottles open and we needed to drink some of those bottles. So some of the bottles that I wanted to drink because one of my good buddies, Chef Will, uh, likes bubbles. um, We opened up some of the things that were already open. Uh, We drank some of the things that were already open and I opened something that wasn't. The thing that I opened that wasn't is something that I really enjoy, which is Francia Corda. Francia Corda, I mentioned earlier, is an Italian champagne, if you will, quote unquote. You can't see my hands, but I'm doing the quotes anyways. I don't know. Sorry, guys. Okay, so it's DOCG quality from Italy. So Italy has different qualification, uh, quality levels with their wines, DOCG being considered the highest quality. Dominazione, origin, control, garantita, which means that it's the Highest quality wine coming from Italy, and it's also coming from a region um, that's that's protected. There's a lot of different regulations that go into making the wine from there. Anyways, so it's a DOCG, which is known as Franciacorta. So a lot of different wines can come from that region. Generally, they're all called Franciacorta, and then the name goes into the producer. So Cadel Bosca is considered Cadel Bosco is considered to be um, one of the forefront producers when it comes to Franciacorta. Again, an Italian. Uh, quote-unquote champagne. Um, it's made in metodo traditionnel, so it's made in the same style as champagne. Um, the Cuvé Prestige is the bottle that I opened. Uh, Francia Corda from Caudal Bosco is in a clear bottle, and it also uses yellow cellophane. Now, Cristal, I think, came in to where I was working at 185 maybe a bottle, maybe a little less. $160 a bottle, let's say. Cado Bosco came in at 30 dollars a bottle now they're not equivalent obviously cristal is a vintage champagne Uh, there's a lot more painstaking laborious efforts that go into making it this is made in the champagne style so they do take this wine quite seriously it's not just some you know willy-nilly approach at a sparkling wine It's, it's it's very uh focused very uh sought after for being high quality sparkling wine coming from italy so the grapes are a little bit different in Italy. They don't have all of the same grapes, and also they don't have all of the same regulations. Um, so the this wine in particular um, is made from Chardonnay, Pinot Nero, which is Pinot Noir, and Pinot Bianco. Uh, 75% Chard, 15% Pinot Nero, and 10% Pinot Bianco. It's aged for 24 months. So as I said earlier, when we were looking at non-vintage champagnes, it's 15 months, and for vintage champagne, it's 36 months. So these guys hit it kind of right in the middle, 24 months. I love this wine. Uh, you could probably pick it up retail for about 40 bucks a bottle, maybe a little bit more. I know it's probably not your everyday drinker, but if you're celebrating with family or you want to pop a bottle for Valentine's Day, um, I don't know why I said that like that. If you'd like to drink sparkling wine for Valentine's Day, or if you'd just like to drink sparkling wine... This is a great bottle. So uh, the tasting notes were a little apple, a little pear, a little honey. Um, it's really nice. Uh, it's mineral-focused. It had kind of a little bit of a nuttiness on the ends. I, almond, maybe. I guess probably almond. Um, is really, really delicious. Similar to a champagne in a lot of ways, um, but lacking, let's say, the focus of one of the most esteemed houses, like Dom Perignon, Cristal, Krug, um, okay, so the other sparkling wine that I had was a Drapier Carte d'Or. Drapier Carte d'Or is one of my favorite bottles right now. I love this wine. Um, the house has been around for a really long time. Um, it retails for about 35 bucks a bottle. It's bright uh, stone fruit. It's really balanced. Um, it's f- <laughs> fucking awesome wine. Excuse my French. I don't know why people say that. It's not French, but... It's a really, really delicious bottle of wine. Um, This build is similar. So, Well, I'm sorry. It's opposite, but it's a similar percentage workout. 75% Pinot Noir, 15% Chardonnay, 10% Meunier. Again, uh, Pinot Meunier or Meunier. Um, Now everybody just calls it Meunier. This is a champagne, non-vintage champagne, however, but it is a champagne nonetheless. So this is, again, about $35 a bottle. Maybe a little more if you can find it retail. I highly recommend it. I love this wine. I'm a big fan of it. Um, Yeah. Okay. The last wine that I had was 2010 Dom Perignon Champagne. So I am somebody that is constantly struggling uh, with the idea of spending a lot of money on a bottle of wine. I don't think that I would go out to a restaurant and I don't think that I would order a $500, $600, $700 bottle of wine. And if I did, it would be, let's say, my birthday, an anniversary. It would have to be a special occasion. And even still, I would have a hard time justifying spending that money on myself. So if we were going out and it was my birthday, I probably wouldn't spend that much money on a bottle of wine. But 2010 Dom Perignon is fantastic. We had the 2009. We were pouring it by the glass. $100 a glass, don't get too excited. 2009 was really good. It was a little more yeasty, a little more bready. 2010 is my style of champagne. From my understanding, it was kind of a difficult growing season. Um, There was a lot of rain, and it caused some um, noble rot to start on the grapes, especially the Pinot Noir grapes. Um, And they had to harvest a little early, so there was some concern about the quality of the wine. Um, But I can tell you, the wine's fantastic. Some quick things on Dom Perignon to kind of, again, justify the price, or not even justify the price, but help you understand why wines like this are a little bit more expensive is this is a vintage Champagne. So again, the minimum requirements are 36 months. Dom Perignon only makes vintage wines. That's all they make. They don't make any non-vintage. And also, the minimum aging that they have is 8 years. So instead of 3 years, they've not only doubled it, They've gone from three years, minimum requirement, to eight years. So it's a labor of love. It's a lower production. I don't know if I would say that. They still produce a lot of champagne. But uh, it's accessible. It's, it's 150 bucks a bottle on average. I would say definitely more than 150 in most cases. If you can get it at a restaurant, it's normally, I would say, 300 $400, $500 price point, um, depending on the restaurant's markup. But uh, Dom Perignon is really fantastic. If you're going to buy it, great, drink it. If your friend's going to buy it, just make sure you get a taste. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, again, the 2010 was really wonderful. Um, It was full, uh, but really restrained on the palate. Had a little bit of spice and pepper, but it was bright. Man, it was really, really fantastic. Uh, And it was stored in a really interesting way. Um, If you've ever wondered how to keep your wines and how to make sure that they last after you've opened them, uh, my next podcast, I'll go over some storage methods, uh, tools that you can use, and my idea. Not that there's a right way or a wrong way, uh, but I have a few opinions. So if you'd like to listen to me ramble on and give you my opinion, which everybody knows what opinions are like, then tune into the next episode of the podcast. If you've uh, smartened up and stopped listening to my podcast by now, great. Don't listen to my next podcast. Or do. And you can just get through the first five minutes and stop listening. But give me those downloads. No, I'm just kidding. If you have any feedback, again, feel free to hit me up, guys. You can send me an email at reluctant at gmail. You can find me on uh, Instagram, the reluctant psalm. Uh, all one word, no underscores, none of that stuff. If you can't spell reluctant, ask Siri or Alexa or whoever's on your phone. Um, or just get a dictionary. I don't know. Anyways, um, but yeah, reluctant somm S-O-M-M. I don't make you spell out sommelier or sommelier. Um, and uh, yeah, hit me up. Send me emails. Give me feedback, guys. I'd love to hear from you. Um, peace. Have a great day.